0: pata physics is a concept invented by the French writer Alfred Jerry. pata physics is the science of imaginary solutions and an answer to the theory and method of modern science.
1: What we understand as science is always about the repeatable. The sun
0: has come up every day, so it is reasonable to assume that it always does and always will. We accept that as a fact. Part of physics doesn't assume anything. The sun has come up every
1: day until now. What if tomorrow it just doesn't? It's about the
2: phenomenal. It treats every instance as unique, so the impossible becomes somewhat probable. It allows for absolutely anything.
1: Good morning. Don't operate under these conditions. You know, we're coming out. It's like like that, we're like, we're striking. That's what it is, it's like a strike. And it's what we're going through now, really, is that we've got to readjust to each other. You know, I've got so many songs, but I've got, like, my total of tunes for the next 10 years or album. I won't lie, I'm not too good. (laughs) Of
0: of discontent Discontent with the Beatles. Hello, and welcome to Winter of Discontent, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Episode 19. We've made it 19 episodes to cover two days of rehearsals. It seems rather a lot, but I hope you've found the conversations as rich in information and fascinating as I have. As this is my first ever podcast, i found the experience of getting overwhelmingly positive feedback and growing an audience very heartwarming. Thank you to everyone who has listened, commented and given feedback on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, as well as my one email. The support and encouragement is much needed. There is still so much work to do. The podcast audience has grown to a regular 500 listeners for every episode and every two weeks I hit a thousand plus downloads. So... As I speak, we're approaching 12,000 downloads for the first two seasons. Thank you all so much. This is the end of Season 2. I'll do a summing up of the events of January 3rd, 1969 at the end of today's episode. Then we'll take a customary month's break before starting Season 3. In the meantime, can you please like and share to your social media and help me build this audience a little more? Please leave a review on your podcast platform and engage with my social media accounts, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. My recommendation for this episode is a book, Finding Fretless. It took me a lot of research to uncover the story of George's Bartell fretless guitar. These guys have the whole history of this unusual instrument, and you can find it on findingfretless.com. Let's dive into my customary brief summary of episode 18. Rehearsals are continuing on George's All Things Must Pass. The process has been a lengthy one because George has taught the individual parts to John and Paul, one at a time, rather than adopt Paul's method of directing the whole band. Paul and George are discussing the guitar figure that acts as a pickup or tag before each verse. Paul suggests George play that part on his own. John, sitting at the organ, plays some churchy sounding chords and gives us a brief mock sermon. George returns to playing the chorus riff from their recent album track back in the USSR and asks his bandmates if they will be doing any older material in the live show. Michael Lindsay-Hogg joins the conversation, thinking it would be a good idea. John is interested in the idea of rocking up some older songs in the style of Joe Cocker, who drastically rearranged with a little help from my friends, and suggests help as a contender for such a treatment. George says from his conversations in America that he thinks an audience won't want to hear entirely new songs and will need some older material as a reference point. He suggests a more obscure 1964 album track, Every Little Thing, as something to work on. Michael reminds Paul that they warmed up their invited audience for the Hey Jude filming with a Little Richard medley, and it would be a good idea to capture that. As he and Paul discuss this, George starts playing Piece of My Heart, a recent hit for Big Brother and The Holding Company. Paul interjects some Janis Joplin-esque baby baby babies. Michael, still pursuing the idea of a medley of oldies, tells Paul that the Beatles are a great rock and roll group. John agrees to doing some older rock and roll numbers if they don't write any of their own. George, for once not talking about the band, discusses American soul duo Delaney and Bonnie, whose backing band, The Friends, he will eventually play with. Once again, he praises their band's camaraderie and contrasts it to the Beatles' apparent dysfunction. John, actively engaged in the discussion, is fired up enough to suggest they do a live show, then use the momentum to go into the studio and create a whole new album, and then split. It's ambiguous as to whether he means part ways temporarily or permanently. Paul takes it as we need to organise our career and talks about re-energising the band starting with getting them back into enjoying performing again. George sort of agrees stating that once they've gone through the tedium of rehearsing they'll enjoy themselves but they have to go through it first. His view of the band is upbeat stating that there is so much material. But there isn't anyone better to produce it than the Beatles. He goes on to point out that he enjoyed their last album the most because he felt more involved in the creative process. A telling statement considering Paul tends to dictate what he wants to George. But George here states that he treats Paul's songs as if they were his own. Kevin arrives and we find out that his absence earlier was to bring some alcoholic drinks in for the band. John has a beer, George a glass of white wine. They take a short break from rehearsing to refresh themselves. George gives Kevin a list of parts he wants for Lucy, his Red List Paul. As Paul and John improvise a brief bluesy tune, George is heard asking John if he has anything he'd like them to rehearse. John states he doesn't have anything finished unless they want to learn On the Road to Marrakesh. George knows this, so he's willing to move on to this. John isn't so keen, stating that it's another slow tune. George and Paul agree that they have mainly slow songs to offer. George wonders aloud whether that could become the theme for the show. John comments that of his own material, he only likes the chorus to Don't Let Me Down so far. Paul suggests going back over one after 909, which they rehearsed earlier. John thinks they don't need to, but he and George then discuss the arrangement, particularly the solo. This leads George into a discussion with John about Eric Clapton and why George thinks he's far better than everyone else and why his own approach is more rigid and less improvisational. Paul rejoins the conversation and George restates his point about Clapton. Paul likens the improvisational style to jazz and then mentions the TV show Jazz at the Maltings. John and Ringo also saw the show, but George didn't. He doesn't really like jazz, but is a fan of Ray Charles's big band, who he saw last summer. In particular, he's a fan of the work of Charles' organist, Billy Preston. Procrastinating once again, George starts playing I've Been Good To You, a song by Motown group The Miracles. Paul interrupts to focus the band back on rehearsing All Things Must Pass, telling him how to teach the arrangement to the rest of the band. In effect, he's saying... If we're doing something wrong, stop and correct us. Ringo checks the rhythm pattern with George before they start. George highlighting parts of the song where they would normally overdub something extra, but obviously can't right now, and they start another run through. Paul highlights what he just suggested to George by stopping the band when there is a timing issue. George then suggests playing the pickup to the verse on his own. Exactly what Paul has suggested half an hour ago. They work on the chorus harmonies some more, trying different ways to phrase them. George, still unhappy with the guitar sound, gets instruction from John on how to get the best sound from his casino. And we learn that one knob is broken. John then suggests using the tremolo setting on the amp, which George does. A discussion then follows about effects on the live sound. John pointing out the advances in technology since the Beatles' last live shows. John asks if Magic Alex's phasing machine is ready yet. Of course it isn't. George offers to borrow Eric Clapton's Leslie Speaker for his guitar. Another version of All Things Must Pass begins with the tremolo effect on guitar before the tape cuts. We now rejoin the Beatles' starting work on a new song in the evening of January 3rd, 1969. Part of this next sequence appears in the Let It Be film.
1: 57, take one. The time is 5.45, second day of shooting. One, two, three. D, D, B, B, E minor, A7.
0: Paul begins teaching the band Maxwell's Silver Hammer.
1: George querying the chords Tape cuts
0: A little bit of time seems to have passed Paul now singing up to the end of the chorus But as with this morning's piano version He hasn't written a tag to get back to the verse It's not quick
1: I'll tell you what just sing us up to the end of the verse where it goes into bang bang You know? Yeah, okay. She
0: goes D George asking to run through a part he doesn't get quite yet Ringo adds just keep doing it a statement that he may come to regret
1: so it's that one now. Is that E mine again?
0: E Paul using a common Beatles songwriting device exchanging major for minor chords effectively changing key and back again John joining in with the vocal as Ringo did this morning the song is an earworm It's Tuesday, 21st of December, 1965, around 7.30pm and Paul McCartney is heading up north with Tara Brown to see his family for Christmas. Tuning his car radio, Paul picks up a radio play on the BBC, translated by Cyril Connolly, called Ubu Koku, or Ubu Kakodid, billed as a pataphysical extravaganza by Alfred Jarry. The intriguing term pataphysical sticks in Paul's mind for some as yet undetermined future use. Pataphysics is essentially a spoof science of imaginary solutions. Our pre credits sequence outlines the philosophy of the movement. Created by French absurdist author Alfred Jarry, the movement became popular enough to have its own pataphysical society in Paris. In Maxwell's Silverhammer, the philosophy of pataphysics is barely touched upon. The word is inserted to rhyme with quizzical, and a brief reference to a test tube seems to misconstrue the whole meaning of the word. But this is not a song that is drawing wholesale from literature in the way that George's All Things Must Pass is. Paul is using words as much for their sound as their meaning. Growing up, Paul's family loved to make up outrageous stories and tell tall tales. In his more recent songs, Paul liked to take a novelistic approach, creating characters to write about, starting with Eleanor Rigby. Maxwell's Silverhammer is another such character song, but its meaning is similar to a song John would later write, Instant Karma. As Paul explains... It epitomizes the downfalls in life, just when everything is going smoothly. Bang, bang, down comes Maxwell's hammer and ruins everything. By the time it was finally released on Abbey Road in late 1969, the rest of the Beatles had grown to hate the song. It's not a particularly popular tune with fans either. First written around October 1968 and at least tried out during the White Album sessions. Lyrically, the song is an attempt by Paul to subvert his cute image. According to Alan W. Pollock, it's an attempt to cut the cutesy cloying cliche with a straight-faced black comedy, along the lines of Charles Chaplin's 1947 film Monsieur Verdoux. Ian MacDonald, author of Revolution in the Head, calls it a ghastly miscalculation. Although we don't hear any discussion before Paul begins teaching the song to the band, it's reasonable to presume that this has been suggested as an antidote to all the slower material that everyone is lamenting today. He doesn't get any pushback anyway. Musically, I don't need to go through the chord changes because Paul is doing exactly that while teaching George and John how to play it. It's in the key of D, but quite complex. Paul calls out a lot of chords. Melody-wise, it's a typically wide-ranging McCartney-style tune, scaling high peaks in verse, bridge and chorus that stretch his vocal range. The bang-bang hook could have been inspired by the backing vocals to John's 1968 song Happiness is a Warm Gun. Structurally, the song is quite repetitive, a verse to start, a bridge followed by a chorus, and a musical tag, not yet devised, to get back to the next verse. The next two times around the sequence differs only by adding a solo section based around the chorus chords before the tag. What you have here is a typical McCartney Beatle type chord sequence interchangeably using minor and major chords. So we have in the verse in the key of D should go to B minor, instead it goes to the major B7th. And in the chorus it moves from D major to E 7th to A 7th and then E minor for the repeat clang clang Maxwell Silvan. Paul seemed convinced that this was a potential hit single, according to Lennon, given the right production. But... In pursuing it, he burnt a lot of goodwill with his bandmates. Ian MacDonald suggests the song was possibly inspired by the Soft Machine track, Pataphysical Introduction. Robert Wyatt, drummer for that band, was a member of the Pataphysical Society. However, that song wasn't recorded until two months after these rehearsals. Another potential influence isn't discussed often. When a Pope dies, there are a number of rituals that must be observed. Many are a closely guarded secret. One of the rituals is that the papal ring and seals are destroyed with a silver hammer to prevent forgery of documents. There is a school of thought that suggests in older times the same hammer was used to hit the pontiff three times on the skull to make sure that he was dead. This has never been confirmed or denied by the Vatican. It's also not at all certain that Paul had any idea that such a practice existed but it's tantalizing to think that such ideas could have free associated, along with pataphysics, when Paul was creating the lyrics to this song. As for the Christmas 1965 trip, it would become memorable for much more painful reasons. Five days after hearing the radio play, Paul lost control of a moped while taking a late night ride with Tara, landing face first. He split his lip badly enough to need stitches and chipped a front tooth. Brian Epstein commented the following year. He honestly thought none of us would notice the chip, for it is so small. I told him three times he should do something about it. Paul assured me he would have the tooth capped, but unfortunately he has not done so. He could be afraid of the dentist. It is my opinion that he will just let it be. Bang, bang, George looking for a harmony, not too successfully. Yeah.
2: Bang, bang, bang.
0: Paul trying to remember the tag he'd worked out on piano. He clearly hasn't finished the song and probably didn't intend to play it today. That said, it was mentioned in Mal's schedule earlier. George wants to hear the words so he can work out the harmony part.
1: Okay, sing the words. So we okay. can see... Uh, one, two, three. John.
0: George forgetting the bridge to the chorus again.
1: No, 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 no. See, uh, it sounds like we should repeat it twice. Bang bang. Yeah. But that's only. Maybe it does. I can't remember.
0: It. George is now offering arrangement ideas. A reminder of the shift to a major chord for George Paul vocalises the drums to Ringo Paul tries the chorus twice through as George suggested
1: Back in school
0: again. That sounds like John, the louder of the two guitars, trying to play a solo, but very tongue in cheek. Paul laughs. No, no, I've, I've been doing I
1: think That's I've only be been be doing, be doing it short. once. Mm. But, but I've. Later on do it twice I've also, yeah,
0: a quick debate about how many times to sing the chorus through. George thinks it's too short. John thinks maybe sing it twice later.
2: <laughs>
1: it's like to, that's the bit. <laughs> oh, that's like the bit that is the one, the title bit and the bit, you know, the catchy chorus again.
0: I only just spotted it during the edit. John is singing the words to I'm the open space member, of the Bonzo Dog Band, to the tune of Maxwell Silverhammer. He's obviously spotted a similarity.
1: It's like it it's just like feels as though boom, it
0: should go... Paul giving rhythm ideas to Ringo, but changing his mind to something half the speed.
1: But even even more sort of rockier, that bit. The rest of it sort of... Well, you know... Down, down, down... Oh, that's it, this is a slow off beat on that. Don't chat, don't chat, don't on the top of it. Just like, uh, I don't know, something so inside. And then, and then, and then, and cha, bang,
0: bang, and then, and then, and then, and then, and then, and then,
1: and then, Oh, I like can high-hat as well. So it's like, bang, bang. Because originally I was trying to get a hammer, which we might get Mal to do. Just to get it on a hammer, like on an anvil. A oh, big ham- hammer on an anvil. silver hammer. Because it's only that sound. You can't make it with anything else. You know, bang,
0: bang, 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 Here we have the moment the anvil idea is conceived, which will become a major part of the finished song.
1: Okay, do it from the beginning then. Sort of like Steptoe, you
0: know. Paul thinking the song sounds a little like the theme music to BBC's Steptoe and Son. Written by Ron Greiner, who is also responsible for the Doctor Who theme. The opening two lines are very much like that tune, even in the same rhythm, so it's likely an inspiration. The show starred Harry H. Colbert and Wilfred Bramble, Paul's very clean grandfather in A Hard Day's Night. One, two,
1: three, jump, just straight, yeah, straight okay. here. One, two, three, four this is just sort of straight this first bit oh I don't know just what you were doing earlier yeah <clears throat> one, two, three, four. Nine are there. nine on that one yeah do you want to write them down on the words pen? anybody got a pencil or a pen <laughs>
0: Slightly pointed comment from Paul as George plays the chords wrongly. George asks for a pen, Michael Lindsay Hogg comes to his aid. John trying out some ideas on guitar. He's contributing quite enthusiastically. George can't read Mal's writing.
1: Is that going really to rate? It was about to D oh. D D Maxwell Silver. Hammer game. That's it, it changes to that then like sort of slow. For the others. One, two, three.
0: Paul definitely juggling with teaching george the chords and Ringo the drums at the same time. Do the shuffle one. Did it, yeah. Just the bang
1: bang. Bend. It's D, bang bang, bang. Uh, Came down. A7, e Yeah. Minor. E minor, yeah. There's A, dead. A, dead.
0: Paul vocalizing a part for guitar here, but this will eventually become part of the backing vocals.
1: But like in harmony. Yes. Like, is that going into A? Yeah. yeah. See, on the piano, oh, I was doing another one. Do you want to play the piano and I play bass for this one? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll have to play a right hand. Kevin? Mal or Kevin? Hello? If you've got the six string bass, it'll be best.
0: George offers to take over on bass if Paul wants to play piano. Paul agrees. The bass guitar as an instrument was still a relatively novel idea, even in 1969. The four string instrument that has become the norm today evolved from the upright double bass and not the guitar. There were a number of experiments with bass instruments during the early rock and roll period. One such innovation was the Dana Electro six string bass launched in 1956. The instrument was, simply put, an electric guitar tuned down an octave. Not wanting to be left behind, the Gibson Company launched its EB-6 model in direct competition in 1960. And this led Fender to introduce the bass-6 in 1961. This was Fender's third bass model after the Precision and Jazz Bass and was modelled on their contemporary Jaguar guitar. Featuring a number of the Jaguar's characteristics from its claw shaped magnetic field accumulators on the pickups to similar locking tremolo and the switching system with each pickup having its own switch. The Beatles acquired the Bass 6 as part of the 1968 Arbiter deal which we've discussed in an earlier episode. This was to be used by the John or George when Paul was playing piano. The need for another bass player in the band may go some way to explaining why Paul's 1963 Hofner had been strung right handed. The Bass 6 with its shorter scale and guitar-like string spacing would certainly have felt more familiar to a guitarist. The Beatles utilised it throughout the White Album sessions on songs such as Back in the USSR, Rocky Raccoon and the clanging tones of the thinner strings are distinctive on Helter Skelter with John getting a scoop sound from the bass with all pickups turned on. The Bass 6 would have been familiar to them by the mid-60s. Jack Bruce of Cream was a notable player who George would have been associated with. Klaus Vormann, Beatle friend since their days in Hamburg, played one in Manfred Mann. And Jet Harris played the Bass 6 on his 1962 rendition of Bessemi Mucho, a staple of the Beatles live act. Any one of these connections could have inspired the band to acquire their own Bass 6. The Bass 6 being neither fish nor fowl never proved highly popular and it was discontinued in 1975 although the Fender Company have attempted to revive it since where it still has some niche appeal George working with John on a harmony guitar part before switching to bass SYNC 58 Someone in the crew calling for Ken. Most likely Ken Reynolds, the boom operator. Something is adjusted. You hear someone say, that's better, isn't it? Audio slate and slips this into the lyrics. It's now 6.10 in the evening. Now we have a performance with Paul on piano and George on bass, feeling his way around the bass line. You know the yeah. the Paul's suggestion for a tag is this funereal chord sequence. Dead music.
1: You know the one. Yeah. Until the
0: very mumbled sentence from Paul, given the context. I'm guessing he's saying dead music and sort of chilling, though he could be saying chilly and vocalises a shivery noise. Actually, I think he's vocalising the sound of a dulcimer, a stringed instrument played with mallets. He could be thinking of the Alabama song by The Doors George is prodding away at the bass line, not quite getting it yet There's no PA on it, can you get some of that on
1: it?
0: Paul wants the piano through the PA. Unamplified, the guitars must be drowning him out from his perspective. Ringo offers a spare mic. George seems to have hit the so-called strangle switch on the six string bass. This cuts all the bass frequencies and gives him that thin tone. Some of the Beatles jam while they set up the mics. teaching his dead chords.
2: For those chords that are, do that go... It's D minor.
0: settled on a fuzzy tone for the bass now and agrees with Paul to play one note through the tag. piano now coming through the PA doesn't sound great if I'm honest.
1: One, two. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> hello. 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 Hello.
0: Paul's vocal bike isn't coming through the PA. Not on. Hello. A mostly inaudible conversation with George ends with Paul saying and the costumes too. Hello. Hello. Derek North As he tests the mic, Paul says hello Derek Or Eric North here. I can't find a contemporary reference to anyone with that name. It could just be a made-up name on the spur of the moment. them into another performance. John having some quite creative ideas on guitar. Georgie's bassline is still experimental. Paul has intuitively gone to an instrumental section over a repeat of the chorus. It's a similar idea to what George has already suggested. A little discussion about the chords again.
1: No, E, yeah. So shout the chords out. Okay.
0: That sounds like Paul is improvising an intro verse, something like the start of Here, There and Everywhere. There's a number of ideas today that may have made Maxwell a little less predictable. John now playing arpeggios on the guitar and stabs for the chorus. Paul clowning for the cameras. Paul consulting with George about the number of choruses. As the song's not finished, he's less dictatorial.
1: Uh, and then have that to the other bit later and have it maybe as a solo, yeah.
0: Paul is either literally imagining an orchestra for an intro or figuratively to demonstrate something the band could play. But it's interesting to think that Paul could be imagining a live show backed with an orchestra in the style of the Hey Jude clips.
1: Okay, so we'll just do the verses. Kevin. And then a knock came on the door. Juh, 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 da, juh.
0: George trying to get Kevin's attention while playing. Paul now tries adding a chord to the end of the chorus as a tang. A faster run through. yeah, that's it.
1: And then back into the verse. Then, back in, back into the. Yeah, okay. One,
0: two, three, four. John. Pulsing in the guitar part for John's benefit. John. Another idea for a tag back to the verse. Paul appears to be writing this song as he goes along. George suggesting a tag in a waltz type rhythm, he calls it a typically oldie song type arrangement.
1: I don't really know where it goes after that. Really oh, uh, what are the words? Do the words like resolve the
0: story? Well, they, should, they will do. I mean, there's not more to write, or they will do. No, no, not more to write. Paul admitting here the song isn't finished. John suggesting it needs another verse. George asking if the lyrics will resolve the story. It's quite a collaborative effort so far. Yeah.
2: <laughs> okay.
0: Paul calls for one more run through.
1: Bit one, two, one, two,
0: three, four. Can I take you out tape cuts? This is probably the same performance, Paul running with the waltz tag idea. these run-throughs have been spent working out how to get from the chorus back to the verse.
1: uh,
0: It sounds like Paul is suggesting John takes a solo. This section is reminiscent of the Hey Joe clips where the band are seen playing the David Frost show theme. suggest they leave it there effectively that's the end of the rehearsals for today george continues to play his bass part the okay. in the background you can hear the other Beatles chatting to michael lindsay hogg Cheer goes up from someone that the day's work is over. George working on that warts time section. It was he who suggested the Waltz part to we can work it out. He's trying to recall a song that switches time signature in the same way and asks John if he knows it. John asks, "One of ours?" What
1: was that? What was Try it Rock and to
0: To find out is if he's had an original idea or he's recalling something from another song there are a few beatles songs that do this the aforementioned we can work it out lucy in the sky with diamonds even a song like everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkey does it more interestingly george will make use of this idea in a song he'll write next week i me mine Michael dropping a hint that it might be a good idea to discuss the staging of the show, which he passively spells out as S-H-O-W. John, quick as the flash, mockingly spells out W-H-A-T. Again, it's taken me to the edit to realise what's being said here. Ringo interprets. Michael's S H O W as a mnemonic and tries to interpret it as sound hydrant of what? Which explains what Paul is saying after. Oh, where's, where's and
1: the sound is hydrant on takes. On. Do you know where my covers is, Kevin? Yes, no. it's over there. It says bye, bye. It was over there anonymously. Bye, bye. It over there anonymously. Bye,
0: bye. Sounds like Yoko is saying. Let's go and find Mal then.
2: Because we've got to think has George, has
1: your 8 track yeah, ever been yeah, used? Yeah, just
0: a bit. Glyn John's trying to get info on the Beatles 8 track machine. George tells him it's in Boston Place. This is a Beatles property where a lot of their equipment is stored. Uh, is mine, Was mine? It's in. Um, <clears> it's <throat> in. Uh, you tired? Boston Place?
1: Yes. Yeah. Mm.
2: Dr. Robert.
0: Michael asks Ringo if he's tired. He says yes, it's rock and roll. Michael asks if he's feeling secure. I guess he's seeing if they're confident about the project.
1: But feeling secure. Yeah, well, it's been tested and used. I think I, I, I think, think we lent it, it to EMI, you <laughs> see. Because EMI that. had two 8-tracks for about. I I I had a bad. They had one 8-track and they had it going. And before they had it going. I think yesterday
0: was really quite indominable. I think yesterday was quite entirely. Yeah, we've been working. Yeah,
1: like, that right. That's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't mean. I don't mean. mean it's co- it's
2: I don't mean coach. Don't, thanks, up. coach. Oh. <laughs> no, I mean that's that's kind of good.
1: But if you're yeah, saying, come yeah. on, oh, where's the A track? And they're saying, oh, like it doesn't come up to specification, yeah. like 3M, it doesn't sleeping. work, and we can't have it all that. Not very often. And saying, oh, you know, we've got three A oh, tracks oh, oh, just oh, down the road, oh, oh, you know, oh, 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 so we oh, lent oh. them one. Yes, yeah. to show yeah. them that if you yeah. want, we'll yeah. send our guy around, and in an hour, we'll have it working here. And whatever your up is, because you're the end of the because of And not have either, but they borrowed one of them. Just to yes, see how the, the was. Yeah. Okay. Thank
0: you George relating a story to Glenn about EMI borrowing the Beatles' eight track machine to compare it with their own, which, as we've discussed, they were reluctant to release from testing.
1: And then they like delivered the it back and just left it in the streets in the pouring rain.
0: Just, uh, very strange. Another incidence of a Beatle making a self referential gag, though, in the pouring rain. Very strange. I also think if you work, it uh,
2: inspires you. I mean, the muse calls when you're working afternoon. more often than it comes out. You see, we've got, th- we
1: got three eight tracks. I've, I've, got got I've got one in ours. i, I John's totally got one do that. which is in Boston. What you place, want, your muse, your other one. Your is not, not just there, your muse.
0: Apple Studio. We now learn the Beatles have three eight track recorders. George has one, John has one in Boston Place, and one is meant for the Apple Studio. George offers it to Glyn if they can't get one for the show. I don't understand
1: um, what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah cool we could use one of them. You know, I like, not to What one he can get. I like the ageing. We're the well biggest thing in the ever Good <laughs> ever. <laughs> um, <laughs> night, everybody. If Good if night, was, all right. If we were in North America, North North you know... You have everything down the sunflower you are yeah
0: But Glenn is still looking for someone to complain to about how much better it is in America, and George is happy to moan with him. The other conversation we can hear... Michael Lindsay Hogg saying, yesterday was a tiring day, but he's feeling indomitable. He's keen to assess the mood of the Beatles. They're talking about how this isn't their normal working hours and how just by working they'll get inspired. A view we know Paul shares. George shouts after Ringo to listen to the Jackie Lomax tracks and suggest a running order. We do you do you our
1: like searing ass- up. Inspiration-wise, just how much? Try and, and play that nice. Jackie thing. Oh, if you that's think of a right. running order, that's give that's us a shout.
0: John is still having fun spelling out words to Michael. Paul jokes. Let's get the H-E-L-L out of here. B-U-T-N-O-T-A-L-W-O
2: yeah,
1: you know, I mean, sh- sh- really. oh, oh, I know, I even I've noticed it, you, you know, know you working in studios the over there. To do right, unbelievable, you want three-eight tracks, they wheel them in, you know. Right, right. It's, I mean, even even in the little place I'm using in Los Angeles.
0: Okay. It's a came in every studio three one in the studio, Beach Boys. It's on Wang. So... A little guy would come in every morning or afternoon, wherever I started, and say anything you want,
1: yeah. anything, yeah, right? Yeah. We'll get it for you. Yeah. When yeah. I came to do the mix, I used like yeah, two right. four yeah. tracks,
0: two two tracks, a yeah, mono machine, and yeah. two eight yeah. tracks, yeah. all at once, yeah. right? Yeah. And they just wheeled them in. Yeah. I asked yeah.
1: them.
2: See Monday at ten, right?
0: Yeah. Monday at ten, right? Yeah. See you, As a parting joke, Michael tells them to have a nice W-E-E-K-E-N-D. John replies, thank Y-O-W, then corrects it to you. Slightly embarrassed.
1: Bye. Bye. Yeah.
0: Dennis O'Dell is there. He said goodbye to by someone called Chris. Sadly, I can't find any information on him. The tape is now turned off. And so, the second day of rehearsal is complete. In terms of what it contributed to the final finished product, it could be argued that not much was achieved. They effectively leave today with just one new song that will make the final cut. And even that is just an old number from their pre-fame days. But that view is very much taken through the lens of hindsight. In fact, some progress has been made on the material tried out on the second. The basic structures of Don't Let Me Down, I've Got a Feeling and Two of Us are now established. To this, they've added the one after 909 and All Things Must Pass. Plus, they've learnt Paul's "Maxwell Silver Hammer. So in two days, they have six songs which they can polish up for their live show. They've also touched upon John's Gimme Some Truth and Sun King. They don't yet know that two of these will be dropped. It's reasonable to imagine that the Beatles went home fairly satisfied with their progress. Mal has compiled their work into a schedule, so things aren't as disorganised as many people think. More material has been shot for the documentary also. From today, three scenes will make the edit of the Let It Be film. Paul and Ringo at the piano, George getting an electric shock from his mic, and Paul teaching the band Maxwell's Silver Hammer. The Paul and Ringo piano sequence was orchestrated by Michael Lindsay Hogg, and his with the equally staged footage of Kevin and Mel pushing a piano from yesterday. Clearly Michael has a pre-planned idea of how he wants the documentary to start. The rehearsals themselves have varied from painstaking to unfocused. George comments openly that they have to go through the boredom before they can get any enjoyment out of the work. Paul agrees but sees this more as getting the Beatles their work ethic back. Part of the problem is discussed today. Both George and Paul note that they're still thinking in terms of recording. Their working method in the last few years has been to rehearse a backing track, record that and then overdub the embellishments, lead guitar, keyboards, backing vocals, etc. What is making rehearsal more laborious is the fact that to rehearse lead guitar or harmonies, they have to play the song over and over again. It's part of the reason why many people start listening to these tapes and grow tired of hearing the same songs endlessly. It is unfortunately necessary to the process of getting good arrangements and will ultimately bear fruit at the end of the project. The mood today is still fun. Paul and John are both hilariously funny at times, but you can sense the presence of the cameras and both seem to be acting up, particularly Paul. But they are probably looking to get something entertaining in the can, as well as just rehearsals. Alcohol definitely plays a part, as we can hear. Very little time appears to have been spent discussing the final live show and its staging, aside from discussing whether to do some old rock and roll tunes or rearrange some older Beatles songs. But as with yesterday, the Beatles are on set for eight hours and we don't have anything like that on tape, so many discussions will have been missed. As for the Beatles themselves, Paul is very much in charge, doing his best to steer the band back to work when they become distracted. However, he undermines this by becoming dictatorial when they rehearse his material. He is very efficient at teaching songs to his bandmates, but this is at the cost of stifling creativity and collaboration, particularly in his dealings with George. George is probably the most heard voice today, taking the lead vocal on the majority of the loose covers he steers the band into. Paul, by contrast, tends to improvise material on the rough jokey jams the band occasionally distract themselves with. Both the covers and the jams are fine for warming the musicians up and getting the band to gel, but there are far too many, and it's evident that much of the time George is procrastinating. He seems to lack confidence in his own material. The rehearsals for All Things Must Pass are lengthy because he fusses over getting the right guitar sound and guitar and then teaches everyone their part individually, then seemingly wants to move on to something else as soon as everybody knows their part. He is still enthused by... His winter with Dylan, the band, and Cream, and really wants the Beatles to work more as a collective, which would naturally raise his profile as a songwriter and vocalist within the group. So the beginnings of a power struggle are starting to emerge. John seems more engaged and less nervous than yesterday. He contributes opinions and suggestions to the live show, especially the concert sound. But ultimately, he's content for Paul to lead the rehearsals. John is often portrayed as strung out and disengaged during these sessions, but as we can hear, he has been often funny, very supportive of George, alert and contributing. Yoko is present with him, but mostly silent. The sessions have been quite good fun, but I'm sure there were times when she wished she'd brought a book. Notable by his absence is George Martin. Paul has assumed the role of producer arranger for the band. Martin is now just a facilitator and that is to the band's detriment. They really could do with his musical vocabulary and discipline. He probably felt his involvement at this stage was unnecessary. Glyn Johns too doesn't yet have a clear role. All discussions about sound have been with Peter Sutton when Glyn confessed yesterday to knowing nothing about how to set up a PA. As such, he's on the receiving end of Paul's ire when he fails to secure an 8-track machine for recording. I'm sure the repeated issues with amps, the PA and electric shocks may have added to Paul's frustration with Glyn. Tony Richmond has finally been caught on tape and seems to be by Michael Lindsay Hogg's side now. Michael himself has captured some useful footage and mostly allowed the band to get on with their work without pushing for a discussion on the live show. Aside from a conversation with John about the type of audience that they would like, as a whole the band do seem to be more enthusiastic and happier in each other's company than yesterday. They even seem fired up by yesterday's edition of Top of the Pops, making a number of references to the acts on the show. The subject of augmenting the band is raised, especially with regards to keyboard players. The seeds therefore being sown for how the project will eventually turn out, especially when George is reminded of Billy Preston during a discussion about jazz. It's even possible that George was hinting about getting Eric Clapton to work with the band. Such was his praise for the guitarist. All in all, today has not been anything like the disaster that it's too often portrayed as. The band have made progress and seem to be getting on well. One sad musical note, this is the last time we hear Paul's 1961 Hofner bass. When he takes it off to switch to piano, it is never heard from again. On Monday, he will switch back to the now properly strung 63 Hofner, and sometime, possibly even this weekend, the original Beatle bass will be stolen. And to this day, it has never been recovered. The weekend beckons for the Beatles, but we'll discuss that when we start season three. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Let me know what you think on our Facebook page and our Instagram, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. You can also email on winterofdiscontentpod at gmail.com. Thanks again and goodbye for now.